Welcome to Blaze and Access, connecting the community to the disabled world. I'm Blaze Bryant. Facebook.com slash Blaze and Shows. It's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows. Same with Twitter. And my website, which has all the shows on it, BlazingShows.com. Hope all is well and that you've had a great week. As the 2021 Disability Rights Hall of Fame happened last week. It was supposed to happen last year, but the pandemic put it on hold. Every year, the event is hosted by the New York State Independent Living Council. This year's class has five members. Robert Gumson, Edith Prentice, Susan Shear, Melvin Tansman, and James Weissman. Edith Prentice died in March, and she was inducted posthumously. Let's hear what they have to say. All speeches are courtesy of the New York State Independent Living Council's YouTube channel. Here's Robert Gumson, who worked as the manager of Independent Living Services for the Adult Career Continuing Education Services Vocational Rehabilitation for some 25 years. I am blessed and honored to be inducted into the New York State Disability Rights Hall of Fame. I have all my life been an advocate from my earliest childhood growing up in Brooklyn through my career years and on into retirement. Growing up in Brooklyn, my family was not schooled in raising a kid with a disability. They learned by the seat of their pants. Somehow, intuitively, they found the way to help me to believe that a disability was no more than an inconvenience. As a child, I learned how to talk truth to power. From the earliest childhood experience that I could remember of doing so, I was brought to a meeting with a summer camp director who really didn't want me to attend his camp because of my vision loss. My dad and he bantered back and forth in the office, and then he got to a point where he finally said, really, this is in Bobby's own best interest. Um, What happens if he falls? And that's when it hit me. I just got up from my seat and I said, I'll get up. And that's what I've done all my life. I've gotten up, knocked down, get up knock down again, get up again. These are the lessons that a person with a disability of any kind needs to learn. We had the same talking truth to power when my family and I had to confront the New York City public schools to keep me mainstreamed in my local school. We fought tooth and nail to keep me in the public school while my vision was being lost. And there was no special education at the time. But New York City Board of Education found itinerant teachers who came into the school and pulled me out of the class to teach me skills of blindness and to teach me Braille which was my saving grace in life. Anybody with a vision loss that prevents them from reading regular print, I couldn't recommend more strongly to learn Braille. No matter how much we advance in the digital age and technology, I can tell you that I couldn't have had my three daughters in turn sit on my lap with a Braille and print book reading to them. There's no way you can do that if you're relying on digital speech format. I will always be grateful to have the opportunity to learn Braille. My trajectory in my career took me to Massachusetts for graduate school. 
and then on to the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission. I learned advocacy from giants of advocacy, but mostly I learned from a young woman that I shared an office with named Cindy Miller, who lived with muscular dystrophy and would go down with us to nickel conferences in Washington and demonstrate. And she taught her personal care assistants to walk away from her and leave her completely utterly vulnerable to the Washington, D.C. police to force them to understand what it required to provide the care for a person with a significant disability. She was a pioneer and she was probably one of my heroes that taught me how to talk truth to power. I walked a fine line at times working when I came to New York State in the independent living movement. I knew my agency when they hired me truly wanted a voice of people with disabilities, but I had never worked for an independent living center. And when I say I walked a fine line, I had to please the people in state ed who had often very different ideas and approaches to disability issues and concerns. And I had to find my conscience many times over the years and take the risks that were necessary to be true to my brothers and sisters in the disability rights movement. Because I knew without an inside voice, without an inside caring, concerned person for what happens to the disability rights movement and independent living centers, the advancements that we made over the years would not have been possible. Over time, I was challenged. I should be, but I tried to be fair, I tried to be honest, and I tried to be true to the movement. Over the years, I worked with some fabulous people, incredible advocates, who took chances, took risks to keep the voice at the table. And that's what we need. We need a voice at the table at all times because we are a system that is cast away and cast out and often overlooked. I have taken the time during COVID to prepare my memoir. It's moving quickly toward finalization and production, and it should be released in 2021 in book form. If things stand, it will be called in blind sight. So once again, I thank you all. I dedicate my induction to my parents who worked so hard throughout my life to make me the person that I am. I dedicate it to my family, my children, my wife. I'm in great appreciation of the work that you do every day, and I have your back. Thank you. Robert Gumson. Edith Prentice was a giant of advocacy in New York City. She died in March. She was 69 years old. Hello, everyone. I'm Victor Calisini. I am the commissioner of the mayor's office for people with disabilities in New York City. I want to thank the New York State Independent Living Council for recognizing Edith Prentice for the 2021 New York State Disability Rights Hall of Fame. I want to congratulate all the other inductees. Robert Gumson, Susan Shear, Melvin Tansman, and Jim Weissman, who are all great advocates. I want to talk a little bit about Edith Prentice. Edith Prentice was an amazing person who unfortunately passed away this March. If we think about all the great things that were said about her through the Daily News that said Edith Prentice was a champion and supreme person with a disability. 
and the New York Times, Edith Prentice, a fierce voice for disabled New Yorkers, dies at the age of 69. New York One reported on her and talked about how great she was. Edith was involved in so many different things. She was part of the 504 Democratic Club, the New York State Independent Living Council, which is here today. Community Board 12, and really being at the root of our community, and really being involved in showing that people with disabilities need to be involved at every level. Manhattan Borough President, Disability Task Force, Permanent Citizen Advisory Committee for the MTA and New York City Transit Riders Council. The MTA New York City Transit Advisory Committee for Transit Accessibility. The Long Island Railroad ADA Task Force. New York City Office of Emergency Management Special Needs Task Force and Washington Heights and Edwood Council for the Aging. There wasn't an issue that Edith didn't know about. She was well-versed in everything, and so many times, the smartest person in the room. There are so many things that come to mind, but she was an advocate that was gruff, straightforward, knowledgeable, unapologetic, and in your face constantly. I remember recently seeing a picture of her and it was with Andy Byford who put together a fast forward plan, which was a plan to make New York City subway accessible. And all these elected officials and right in the center of it all was Edith Prentice. And you could see that they were listening intently because they knew if they didn't get it right, Edith was gonna go after them because that's the type of advocate she was. I remember being in rooms with her and realizing, uh-oh, here it comes, here it comes because you didn't know what was gonna come out. But what you did know what was gonna come out was that she was not going to say or take no for an answer, that she wanted people to know that people with disabilities were part of society, that they needed to be included in everything that everyone offered. And she was not just about wheelchair users. Although she was in a wheelchair, she advocated for anyone and everyone. The issues were never about her, and only about the community. She was not selfish and she was always giving. And she loved New York City and knew what its potential was, even when the city and its built environment did not allow her to do it. She realized that New York City was great. She realized that it could live up to its potential. And I've done everything in my power to make sure that her issues were heard. She shaped a lot of different things throughout New York City. She shaped accessible parks and programs, communities and community board engagement, accessible taxis, for hire vehicles, get out the disability vote, local law 28, local law 27, local law 47. She helped me put together a snow summit, the ADA 25 and our celebration that we did big. The disability pride parade, I remember talking to her about this and she really was the one that pushed for this and told me there were other organizations out there and that we needed to put this together. She knew MTA matters up and down and in times of support, I called Edith Prentice. And Edith Prentice wrote one of her last pieces of advocacy with us was to elevate transit accessibility that would allow the city and the state to incentivize developers to install easements into elevators and how fitting it was for that to be her last advocacy issue because she cared about transit so much. And I'm going to leave you with the story of Edith and it has to do with transit. It was a memorable time for me. And I just started to ride the subway stations. And I thought I was so cool 
transferring from one station to another at 42nd street. And, and I was on the four five, I took the, I took the two train and transferred to the four, five, six train. I thought I was like, all right, I got this. I got this. And all of a sudden I hop in an elevator and I have no idea where I am. I start getting really anxious and I get off at one floor and I realize this isn't where I'm supposed to be. I turn around, I get back into the elevator and I get out. And at this point I am absolutely afraid and not sure what to do. And who do I see? This woman in a power wheelchair, basically with a halo on and it's glowing. And it was Edith Prentice. And I say, Edith, help me, I'm lost. And with Edith's smile and her like, hello, Victor, why don't you know where you're going? And points me in the right direction is what I'll always remember about Edith. I got to the spot where I needed to be and it was because of Edith. Her advocacy will live on. I will do everything in my power to ensure that she's remembered. And I just don't know what I'm going to do without her. So thank you, New York State Independent Living Council, for empowering New Yorkers to live a meaningful life and realize that disability is what it's all about. And I gladly accept this um, Disability Rights Hall of Fame award on behalf of Edith Prentice. Thank you. Edith Prentice. Now we hear from Susan Shear. She is best known for designing and implementing Accessoride, which is the paratransit transportation services for people with disabilities in New York City. I want to thank NYSILK for creating the Disability Rights Hall of Fame, for sponsoring this remote ceremony, and for bestowing this honor on me. I also want to congratulate my fellow inductees with whom I've long enjoyed fighting the good fight. I especially want to express my gratitude to my husband, Josh, and my daughter, Melissa, for their unstinting support of my disability advocacy work. I'm proud that my husband now includes ableism in his high school English curriculum, and that my daughter is already a fierce disability rights advocate, soon to be armed with a law degree to extend her reach. I was the same age as my daughter is now, 25, when I started down the road of what proved to be my calling. In my first job after college at the New York City Department of Transportation in 1987, I was tapped to help design, implement, and eventually run the city's paratransit system, which we dubbed Accessoride. I quickly learned about the agenda-setting power of New York City's loud and proud disability community, how critical accessible transportation was to full inclusion and that government was where the rubber met the road when it came to disability rights. After three years of contentious public meetings at which the disability community schooled everyone, myself included, on what equitable treatment meant, the service finally launched. Where there had been no options, now there was 24 seven door to door citywide accessible transportation. A year later, we had delivered 300,000 trips to school, work, medical appointments, and family get-togethers. Today, that number is 6 million trips annually. I was hooked, and the whole experience had a powerful impact on me, leaving scars that I'm pretty sure I didn't have before. I learned our community's history and how, with lawsuits, patience, and a good sense of humor, we could bend the arc towards justice. 
I also discovered that being a voice inside government for the disability community suited me. As my government colleagues grew closer to me, they also became more comfortable with our community. Over the decades working for multiple city agencies, I was able, as the only person with a disability in a senior role, to influence decisions that broadly impacted hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers with disabilities. As someone who grew up without any female role models with a disability, I was fortunate enough to benefit from the mentorship of some strong women. Advocates like Ann Emmerman, Frida Zanes, and Nadina Laspina refused to let anyone tell them to, quote unquote, stay in their place. Instead, they spent their days and nights leading our community in battle. At a time when there were no women leaders with a visible disability in city government, their efforts had paved the way for me to hold the accessoride position and their guidance helped me find my voice as an advocate. Accessoride also taught me that our work is never finished. 30 years later, we're still seeking better quality service on what's now commonly known as stressoride. That's why, while it's important to celebrate our accomplishments on occasions like this, we all know how much is left to do, especially now and especially in the area of employment. At our organization, the Institute for Career Development, which helps New Yorkers with disabilities access employment, we've seen firsthand that our community has been suffering some of the steepest economic losses and hardships from the COVID-19 pandemic. We were more likely to lose our jobs and we will be slower to regain them. Even pre-COVID, 70% of people with disabilities weren't in the workforce and the unemployment rate was two and a half times that of folks without a disability. Working age people with disabilities in New York City were also more than twice as likely to live in poverty as people without disabilities. Those statistics have been virtually unchanged for 30 years, even during the longest economic expansion in US history. We've successfully focused as a community on so many fundamental foundational issues, healthcare, housing, transportation, education. The next frontier is employment and economic empowerment. Disability should be celebrated as a form of diversity that adds value to any organization. We should be seen as adding something, not lacking something. People with disabilities must have a seat at the table as government and business plan their comebacks from the pandemic. We have the opportunity and the responsibility to make sure that equity and inclusion for individuals with disabilities are part of the economic recovery process from the start so that the next generation of young people with disabilities can have their seats at the head of the table. As my mother and advocacy hero always said, onward and upward. Susan Shear. Melvin Tansman was the executive director of the Westchester Disabled on the Move for nearly 20 years. His passions are housing and home care. Good evening, friends and colleagues. I'm really humbled to be inducted into the Disability Rights Hall of Fame to join such leaders and mentors as Marilyn Saviola, Anna Fay, Pat Figueroa, and Jim Weissman is truly an honor for me. I hope that my efforts to protect and expand community-based long-term care services and affordable, accessible housing 
have contributed to much needed change. I know today we are faced with many challenges, the impact of COVID-19 on people with disabilities, cuts to Medicaid, particularly home care, and changes to the consumer-directed personal assistance program, with aisle budgets also being cut. When facing these threats, we really must recommit to the advocacy mission of independent living centers and our allies. When I look at my colleagues who have been inducted, there's one commonality I've noticed about five of the folks who are in the Disability Rights Hall of Fame. At one point in their advocacy career, worked for either the Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association or United Spinal. The support of the leadership for our advocacy efforts in civil rights and independent living services allowed me and others to dedicate ourselves to policies that advance the status of individuals with disabilities. I do believe that this organization should have a place someday in the Disability Rights Hall of Fame. For me, my passion was Medicaid and community-based long-term care and fair and affordable integrated housing. My commitment to home and community-based services is personal as well as professional. Members of my family have been victims to policies that favored institutional services. I recently spent a month in Florida helping my 94-year-old mother-in-law avoid placement in a skilled nursing facility and arrange for a setting that was more integrated. Having said that, I believe that now is the time for passage of the Disability Integration Act, which would strengthen the integration mandate homestead and create a federal civil rights law which addresses the civil rights of people with disabilities who are stuck in nursing homes and other institutions. As our nation faces health and economic challenges, I believe we must fight to assure the budget choices support our independence and do not threaten our civil rights. On that note, have a wonderful rest of the evening and a wonderful gala. Melvin Tansman. Last but certainly not least, we hear from James Weissman. For the past seven years, he has been the chief executive officer at the United Spinal Association. I'm proud and honored to be included with this group of inductees to the Disability Rights Hall of Fame. It saddens me to think that fellow inductee Edith Prentice, with whom I've worked side by side on so many advocacy issues, will be unable to enjoy this honor. My first job as a lawyer was working with Paul Hearn, my friend since teenage years, who had osteogenesis imperfecta. We got a grant to open a legal services office that was architecturally accessible to poor people with physical disabilities. We expected to be handling landlord-tenant, domestic relations, and benefits disputes, and we did. But in the door came huge systemic problems. Denials of housing, employment, transportation, education, extensions of credit, and admission to places of public accommodation, even those run by government, were the norm. Paul said to me in 77, you do transportation, I'll do employment. He said it as if we actually could accomplish something. In 79, I went to work in a division of Governor Carey's office. Our office in the World Trade Center hosted a meeting of disability advocates. My boss told me off in front of Vietnam-era paralyzed veteran Terry Moakley, a Hall of Fame inductee of a few years ago for taking the side of people with disabilities. Terry followed me to the men's room and asked if I was happy with the new job. The next day, 
I got an offer from Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association, now called United Spinal Association, where I've worked for the past 42 years. In 79, EPVA sued MTA to make buses and subways accessible. No newspaper editorial board supported us. MTA, in its motion to dismiss our case, argued that it does not post signs that say no handicapped allowed, and it permits people to crawl onto buses and trains if they have to. No liability, they said, because non-discrimination required only passive behavior. We argued the state's non-discrimination law required that when MTA bought buses or built or renovated stations, they had to buy, build, and renovate accessibly. That is in a non-discriminatory manner. Not merely continue business as usual if the state's non-discrimination mandate meant anything. In 84, we settled. And in 88, we settled with Philadelphia's transit system. We got lifts on buses, paratransit, and at least key rail stations to be made accessible in the two oldest, largest rail systems in the United States. Lots of smaller discrimination cases came our way. A singles dance wouldn't sell tickets to a wheelchair user. A public pool denied admission to a resident when the only requirement for admission was residency because she used a wheelchair. A college charged the dorm student double because his wheelchair took up too much room. A Central Park West co-op wouldn't allow a resident to pay for a ramp because her neighbors didn't want the building to look like a hospital. The disability rights community, including disabled Vietnam veterans, kept pushing. And in 88, the Americans with Disabilities Act was introduced for the first time. George H.W. Bush was campaigning for president, supporting the ADA, which would have to be reintroduced during the next Congress. The ADA gave me a once in a lifetime opportunity to work with advocates from all over the US with varying disabilities in one coordinated effort to educate Congress people and their staffs about the history of isolation, segregation, and discrimination endured by those with disabilities in the United States. Advocacy efforts created a national collective consciousness of the needs and rights of people with disabilities. New York City's curb ramps, accessible taxis, and developing an ADA consulting service for the community, architects, and developers became important post-ADA responsibilities for United Spinal and me. 18 years ago, EPVA became United Spinal Association, now a 58,000-member national organization with 50 chapters and a presence on Capitol Hill. Leading United Spinal Association as CEO for the past seven years has been a privilege and an honor. Thank you to NYSILK, to all my fellow advocates, and to everyone who has made an effort to accommodate people with disabilities. James Weissman. I encourage you to read the full bios of these Hall of Fame giants of advocacy at nysilc.org. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Blaze and Access, connecting the community to the disabled world. What do you think? Let me know at facebook.com slash shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows. On Twitter at shows, Or email me at shows at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and at my website, blazinshows.com. To quote the late Christopher Reeve, 
A hero is an ordinary individual who finds the strength to persevere and endure in spite of overwhelming obstacles. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk again next week. On Blaze and Access, I'm Blaze Bryant.